let's get started. So we are almost done looking at uh, probably the darkest section of our study, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist, kingdom of darkness. Uh, and Revelation actually doesn't spend much time here. Um, it basically just gives us enough time to introduce the Antichrist's kingdom and then show its destruction. Um, the Antichrist's kingdom will probably begin uh, to be established at, during the first seal with the white horse. Uh, but the Antichrist himself will not come into prominence until the middle of the uh, tribulation period. So although it, it will probably be possible to guess who the Antichrist is early on in tribulation period, it's not confirmed until the midpoint because one thing that um, confirms that he is that Antichrist will be when he... Uh, enters into the temple that is rebuilt during or just before the tribulation period and declares that he himself is God. Uh, he will sign a contract with Israel, but we don't know how public the contract will be. Uh, so it's possible that we won't know. Of course, we will be gone in the rapture by that point. Uh, but those living here on the earth may not know that that contract has been signed, but there will be no uh, question that he has entered into the king or the temple and declared himself to be God. Um, so what's really in focus here is from the midpoint forward. And this is going to give us a large snapshot uh, of just about the entire second half of the uh, tribulation period. That's chapter 14. Uh, 15 through 18 is going to be the end of that tribulation period where we're probably dealing with the last six months during those uh, those chapters. <clears throat> so first thing we're going to look at tonight is a message of hope. There is a, a sad note to this message of hope, but ultimately it is um, a message of hope. Um, and that is the heavenly Zion, the promise that um, death on this earth is just natural death. Uh, for the believer, but that they have a glorious hope and glorious promise awaiting them in heaven, so that it, we can think of what Paul says is, uh, oh, uh, oh, death, where is your sting? That's kind of the thrust of this first part of Revelation chapter 14. <clears throat> so we, uh, we begin then, Revelation 14, verse 1, then I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, the biggest question to answer here is not who are the 144,000. Uh, we've answered that already um, twice. We've seen them. Uh, we are going to look at it again. But the big question here is, where's Mount Zion? What is Mount Zion? Uh, well, Mount Zion is Jerusalem. But there are three Jerusalems indicated in scripture. One is the Jerusalem that we could go and visit today um, in Israel. The other is the heavenly Israel, the heavenly Zion um, that is in heaven. We see that in Hebrews, that things of this earth are a copy of the things that are in heaven. Um, so there is a heavenly Zion or a heavenly Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem and Zion being the same thing will exist in the millennial kingdom as well. So there are really three options here. Are we looking at uh, Mount Zion before the return of Christ, Mount Zion in heaven, or Mount Zion after the return of Christ in the millennial kingdom? 
might not seem like it matters too much, but uh, some of the implications, for example, if Mount Zion is on this earth in this present day, uh, then here when we have the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, we have his return, the return of Christ before the end of the tribulation. Uh, Christ's return ends the tribulation. Um, and this happens sometime after the midpoint, but before uh, the consummation of that seven-year period. So uh, the question then becomes, is this in heaven or is this in the millennial kingdom? <clears throat> so we have uh, some indication of this within the text. Again, it's, um, it is debated whether or not this is in heaven or in Zion. Pretty much everyone agrees it is not during the tribulation period. Uh, or not uh, not on the earth, but it, in my view, is during the tribulation period, but not the earthly Zion, the heavenly Zion. Um, <clears throat> so the lamb in heaven, Revelation 5, 6 through 7, notice that the lamb standing on Mount Zion in uh, chapter 14 is very similar to the lamb in Revelation 5, which is in heaven. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders and the lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book at the right hand of him. So time now we've seen the lamb, which is Christ standing as if slain, has been in heaven. <clears throat> so if this verse, verse one, chapter 14 is not in heaven, then it is the only time in Revelation or anywhere else except for uh, <clears throat> John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where Christ is called this lamb standing as if slain, but it takes place somewhere other than heaven. So <clears throat> this is probably not the one time where that happens. This probably is consistent with the rest of the uses of um, this symbol of the lamb as Christ being in heaven. But we do have to deal with the issue that there will be a Zion in the millennial kingdom. And some who think that it is impossible for the 144,000 to die during the tribulation, uh, because of that presupposition that they cannot die, they have to place them in the millennial kingdom and not in heaven during the tribulation period. The issue becomes, can the 144,000 die during the tribulation period? If they can, the most natural reading of this is that they're in heaven. If they can't, then this would have to be the millennial Zion. And that's okay because there is scriptural evidence that there is a millennial Zion. We get that in Isaiah 2. It says, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So this is looking at the Messiah, uh, messianic kingdom that is promised to Israel because Isaiah um, is basically telling the, the Jews uh, prior to the exile that their hopes of a Davidic kingdom being established uh, aren't dashed, but they are on pause because of disobedience. So he's saying this will happen, that Zion will be the center of the world and the Messiah will rule from that mountain. Uh, but Isaiah goes on to develop this uh, the theme that the kingdom will be delayed to them, that there will be the time of the Gentiles that comes in between uh, the exile and the millennial kingdom. 
Um, Isaiah continues in verse four of chapter two and says, he will judge between the nations, that is the Messiah, and he will render decisions for many people and will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Now, this verse is one that is taken out of context so often because it is a wonderful verse. Um, but the danger is to apply it to this present world. Uh, this is a verse that basically states that until Messiah is ruling from Jerusalem as the center of world government, um, peace will not be between nations. Now, this verse is posted on the outside of the UN. Um, but there is nothing about Jesus Christ ruling. It's the UN ruling over the world. And so by inference, they're saying that because of the UN, not because of Christ, we'll beat our hammers and swords into plowshares. So that's just another instance in which uh, the work that only Christ can do, man is uh, attempting to do without Christ. So uh, that's that's kind of an aside here, but we're looking at the millennial kingdom and seeing that um, Mount Zion will be the center of world government um, during that millennial kingdom. But in Hebrews, we see that Zion is also a heavenly location, that uh, just as there is an earthly Zion, earthly Zion is a replica of Zion in heaven. So Hebrews 12, 22 through 26, I believe, says, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turns away from him uh, who warns from heaven. Sorry, there are geese next to me, so I'm distracted. <laughs> uh, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. So we see this is prior to the termination of uh, this earth system. Uh, this heavenly Zion exists. And there is a judgment yet coming. It says this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So we have heavenly Zion. Uh, prior to the destruction of this world, this earth system. So right now there are two Zions in existence, the physical Zion in Jerusalem, or that is Jerusalem, and then the heavenly Zion. And this is going to remain until this world is shaken and Zion is established in the millennial kingdom. So then that leaves the question, can the 144,000 be killed during the tribulation period? If we remember who these 144,000, they were 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, minus Dan and Naphtali, I believe. Uh, 
but it is important to remember that this seal is not a seal of salvation. It's a seal of service. So Dan and, again, I can't remember. No, it's not Naphtali, it's Manasseh. Dan and Manasseh are not included in this list, and Levi is included in this list because Dan and Manasseh brought in the corruption in Israel uh, by assimilating with the northern uh, countries, bringing in um, idolatry into Israel, corrupting it to such a point that uh, in Second Kings, uh, they were specifically uh, isolated in judgment. And I, I believe that is why they're not part of this 144,000, not because they don't share in the inheritance uh, in the millennial kingdom, but because uh, they have not proven themselves to be uh, disciples to the Lord, though they are saved. Um, so this seal is for service, not for reward, not for salvation, but to be a special uh, minister of God during the tribulation period. They'll essentially be missionaries. Uh, now, that's not explicitly stated in scripture, but we see in the context of chapter seven that they're ministry results in the salvation of multitudes during the early parts of the tribulation period. Uh, now, it seems that their ministry extends through the first three and a half years, uh, and that seal protects them during that time. But here at the midpoint of the tribulation, if you remember at the end of chapter 12, when it says that Satan is um, going off to make war with the rest of the children of Israel who are not in Petra. Um, it seems as though he turns his target towards the 144,000 who are not in Petra, but who are missionaries around the world. And this seal does not protect them from that wrath on this earth, but they are sealed um, prior to their seal of service, sealed by the Holy Spirit for salvation. So uh, my understanding of Revelation and the texts from chapter 7 to 14 is that they are protected during their ministry, but their ministry only lasts for the first three and a half years. Their ministry uh, does not continue into the second half as a special sealed service to the Lord. But let's look here at Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 to 4, where we see it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So this was a protective seal, not a salvation seal, uh, at the beginning of the tribulation prior to the uh, upheavals after the, uh, after the first four seals, um, or after six seals, somewhere in there, six seals. After the first six seals, they are sealed on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it goes on to list um, 12 tribes, excluding Dan and Manasseh and including Levi, which indicates that this is not for millennial inheritance because Levi does not have an inheritance in the land of Israel. Uh, and Dan and Manasseh do receive an inheritance. Um, their inheritance is... Uh, tantamount to their salvation. <clears throat> All right, in Revelation 3, 12, uh, we see these, uh, these 144,000 are going to be overcomers, um, but they're overcomers because they are in Christ. So we read, he who 
overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. So we see if we go back here, they are described as man, as man after death, not before death. They have the name of the Father written on their foreheads. They're in Mount Zion. Revelation 3, which came earlier in the context, like if we were just sitting down to read Revelation, we would have to remember that uh, chapter 3, verse 12 comes before chapter 14, verse 1. So we want to carry this into uh, chapter 14 and see that having the name of God written on their foreheads, having the city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with them together with their new names, this is obviously heaven imagery. And the overcomers are all believers, not special believers. Uh, this is, again, quite a controversial topic, especially when entering into uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Um, some would like to say that these are uh, Christians who persevere well, um, who do good works, but uh, John himself defines what an overcomer is in a previous book that he wrote, 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 to 5 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So all who have believed that Jesus is the Son of God are overcomers, not because we are ourselves by our own works have overcome the world, but because Christ has overcome the world, and we share in that overcoming with him through faith. But this does bring us to a dispensational decision. Uh, this uh, important to recognize that the church will not be present during the tribulation period, because the church is promised that they will be kept from this hour of testing whereas the 144,000 are in the midst of that or of testing. So here it says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is upon or about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, remember verses or chapters two and three, were part of our three-part outline that are the things that now are. Chapters four and beyond are the things that are coming after this. So John has given us an outline um, that is past, present, and future. Chapters two and three are speaking directly to the church, directly to the Christian, and saying uh, everything from chapter four and on is coming on this earth after you're gone. Make sure you're in the church, because that is how you avoid chapters four and on, or chapter six and on. Uh, so here we do want to recognize that there is a distinction in the promises made to the seven churches and to what is the experience of believers during the tribulation period. So uh, we escape this hour of testing specifically from chapter 16 or from chapter six forward. Uh, but the 144,000 will be in the midst of that trials, but they still have promises from God. They are still overcomers through faith in Jesus Christ, but they are 
um, a different people of God, just like Israel and the church is a different entity. These 144,000 are not part of the church. We call them tribulation saints, and all those saved under their ministry will be tribulation saints. <clears throat> all right, verse two, we hear a voice from heaven. Now, this makes it a little trickier again to interpret because if we interpret heavenly Zion as being heaven, how can we hear a voice from heaven if Zion is in heaven? So let's read this verse. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of, a, of harpists playing on their harps. So many people who believe that this Zion looks forward to the millennial kingdom, not um, heavenly Zion, says, of course, how can you hear a voice from heaven if you're in heaven? already. Well, John is not in heaven already. It's a vision of what is in heaven, and then he hears from heaven these voices speaking. If we remember in chapter 10, towards the end, um, heaven is opened and John sees in heaven uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Again, we get this similar imagery where John is describing things in heaven, but then he sees what is in heaven and he hears what is in heaven. This is the same kind of situation where he is describing an image that is heavenly, but he himself is viewing this as if he is on earth. He is also hearing this as if he is on earth. Um, and who is this voice that is speaking? It's described as one that sounds like many waters, like loud thunders and like harps. Uh, this imagery is kind of an army camp. Uh, wherever they stood still, they dropped their wings. So this is speaking about the angels or the four living creatures uh, that Ezekiel sees in his vision. And beyond um, these four creatures, he sees the throne of God. And he's able to identify this sound as sounding like the voice of the Almighty, because later in chapter 10, he hears the voice of the Almighty. So uh, he says the wings of these angels sound like abundant waters and abundant waters sound like the almighty. So he's got a double simile here, uh, but they also sound like a tumult. Uh, he says like an army camp uh, in Revelation, it says like loud thunder. Um, I think those are kind of similar images there. All right, the voice of Jesus that we looked at uh, back in, oh, do we see that in December or January <laughs> last year? <laughs> so. We're, uh, we're digging up our memory here. Revelation 1.15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Uh, now, this could be many waters like a waterfall or like, uh, like the babbling of a brook, but um, I like to think that it sounds more like a, a heavy rainstorm. I think uh, not so overwhelming that it's unpleasant to listen to uh, the presence of uh, but it would still drown out um, other sounds uh, the presence of god in zion ezekiel 43 2 says behold the glory of god of the god of israel was coming from the west uh, coming from the way of the east and his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory now this in ezekiel towards the end of ezekiel is looking forward into the millennial kingdom so we see the presence of God uh, will be hearing his voice and actually seeing him uh, during this millennial kingdom. 
uh, but it's associated with his glory, his voices. And uh, finally, the presence of God on Sinai in Exodus 19, 18 through 19. This is all the way back at the giving of the law when Moses uh, hiked up Mount Sinai. They saw and heard God. Now, this is a really unique uh, hearing of God. In fact, this is called the bat call in, uh, in Hebrew. And it's when the voice of God is heard from the earth. Um, and whenever the voice of God is heard on the earth during this, uh, during this earth part portion of creation, uh, the uh, God is physically visible on this earth at the same time in the form of his glory or the Shekinah glory. So it's interesting to trace that whenever you hear the voice from heaven, the presence of the Shekinah glory is also there. So on Mount Sinai, that's true. Uh, when God speaks from heaven during the baptism of Christ or during the transfiguration, we also see the shining glory of the Shekinah glory. Shekinah uh, in Hebrew is uh, very similar to Emmanuel, uh, that it is uh, God with us. It is the presence of God. So they recognize that God dwelling um, in the Shekinah glory in their presence was essentially like God walking with them uh, in a similar way as he had with Adam in the garden before the fall. So here the presence of God on Sinai, we see and hear him. It says, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. So we see his voice, his voice correlated with thunder here. All right, and what is the song that they sang? They said, uh, or it says, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, this for me really seals the deal that uh, this is heavenly Zion, because where are these four living creatures? And especially where are these elders? They're in heaven. Uh, four living creatures um, are God's heavenly, uh, or the uh, cherubim around God's heavenly throne. And the elders are the church. The church has been raptured from this earth. They are seated around the throne of God. They are not going to set foot on this earth until they come together with him in the clouds um, at the end of the tribulation period. So for me, it just seems impossible that they are anywhere besides heaven. Unless, uh, yeah, unless we want our uh, whole theology to get really skewed, which it would have to be skewed if it were true that uh, this is not heavenly Zion. We would have to reckon, reckon with that, but the image seems to point towards heavenly Zion. Of course, we want our theology to change if scripture indicates that it needs a change, um, but we don't want to interpret uh, scripture through our theology. We don't want to bend scripture to fit our theology. So uh, when we are told that these elders are in heaven in chapter four and five we want to continue to see them in heaven until we are told that they are other than in heaven let me try to remember why i use that verse next <laughs> all right so we've got 
a personal God. Once again, we have a dispensational distinction. In Revelation 2.17, uh, we read in the promises to the church, specifically the overcomers, uh, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, <clears throat> this is a promise given to the church that there is a name which God has for us that we do not know yet, but that we will know. And this will be a very intimate knowledge between Christ and us. God is a very personal God. Um, he knows each one of us intimately and personally and loves us each. Uh, and so he does have secrets with us that, uh, that are not for others, just like a married couple will have, uh, have things that are only for them in their relationship. So there are things that are only between us and Christ as individuals. And that is essentially what we have here with this song. Only the 144,000 can know. Um, a lot of people, of course, want to know what is this song. And uh, the simple answer is, you never know. Uh, this is not for us. This is for them. And it's an intimate um, song that they will share together with the Lord. And it's for a very limited number of people here. This 144,000 who are seed from the tribe of Israel. Uh, in the last days. So as much as I'd love to tell you what that song is, it, it would be very impossible for me to do so. Um, but that should, that should remind us of this promise that we have with God. And just as we wouldn't want to share that and break that intimacy, so, so we don't uh, interrupt their intimacy with Christ either. And I don't think we'll feel like we're lacking anything, that uh, they share that with Christ and we do not. <clears throat> All right, this is just a reminder here that these 24 elders are in heaven. Um, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns were on their head. So that is uh, a heavenly scene, very similar to the heavenly scene of Mount Zion that we have in chapter 14. The four living creatures are also in heaven. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So all of this imagery from chapters uh, four and five matches perfectly with our imagery of the heavenly Zion in chapter 14. So we want to interpret that as heavenly Zion. And if those 144,000 are present in heaven during the tribulation, then it must be possible uh, that they die during that tribulation period. Now, that's not to say that, uh, that it will happen immediately or um, early on in the tribulation. In fact, I do believe they are sealed and protected from death until the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, but chapter 14 uh, verse six and on is going to tell us essentially the remedy for God's ministers on this earth being killed off. He's going to send angels to preach the gospel. All right. So what is the fate of these 144,000? We're going to get a little bit more definition of who they are and uh, what their character is, um, but we're also going to see um, their fate. It says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, 
for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So we see that they are together with the Lamb, that they will follow him wherever he goes. Uh, so this again is why I believe they are in heaven, because the Lamb is currently in heaven, um, and they will follow him back from heaven when he returns to the earth to. Uh, to have victory over the camps of Armageddon. Uh, <clears throat> but they are kept chaste. Now there's two main interpretations of what this means. Um, some say that this is spiritual chastity. Others say that this is physical chastity. Uh, now, while I think there is some precedent for it being spiritual chastity, I just don't see that in the text. Uh, it seems pretty clear that it is speaking of physical chastity. Now, this is not to say that uh, physical chastity is the um, required experience for all Christians or even all ministers, as uh, some of the Catholic Church have interpreted this, or I don't know about the Jehovah's Witnesses, how they handle this one. Oh, Mormons? Mormons, sorry. Oh, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. They have lots of kids, so obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. But uh, there is. There is a precedence for using chastity as a spiritual um, chastity and not a physical chastity. Um, so although we want to take everything literally, uh, when there's no indication that it's not literal, at times we are indicated that something with literal interpretation is supposed to be interpreted um, spiritually. And that's what we have here in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 3 where Paul uses this imagery of chastity to speak of spiritual chasteness, um, not physical. So he says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, Paul is not teaching the Corinthians that they should not marry. Paul is teaching the, Christ, or the Christians in Corinth that as the bride of Christ, they are to remain spiritually chaste so that Christ is their only uh, husband when he comes to, uh, to adopt them in marriage uh, at the end of the age of the church. We are the bride of Christ. We will be married to him. We are um, told to remain spiritually chaste. Uh, we might uh, link this to other verses like not chasing after winds of doctrine. Uh, I don't know if this is a crass term or not, but it's basically saying don't chase spiritual tail. It's don't chase after spiritual skirts, I guess you could say. I don't know. Is that a, does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> Uh, to remain spiritually chaste is basically to say, like, don't go off dabbling in all other sorts of spiritualities. Uh, we're we're to remain. Yeah, sorry. Maybe maybe it's a generational term. I don't know. Uh, I'm turning red now. <laughs> all right. Uh, so this is the bride of Christ that is supposed to remain, uh, or to remain just like a bride would wait for her husband uh, remaining a virgin we're to remain spiritual virgins awaiting our marriage to christ 
So in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, we read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having not having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be a that she would be holy and blameless. So chastity is at times used for spiritual chastity. But uh, Jesus and Paul both had uh, statements in the Gospels and then in, uh, in the epistles. And I thought this was funny because in the NS, NASB, the uh, headings, both for Christ's statement on chastity and for Paul's, it says, Jesus has a difficult statement, and then Paul has a difficult statement. Well, these aren't really difficult statements to understand. They would be difficult statements to, uh, to interpret for some theologies, but we just want to take it for what it says, uh, the natural reading. So in Matthew 19, 10 through 11, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, or rather the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So for some, and Paul's going to reiterate this, um, it's better not to marry. Now, Paul is going to give us some parameters on that. Um, it's not for everyone not to marry. Some, uh, some For some, it is to marry. Uh, and in our culture, we kind of look at this as uh, marriage is only for the special individual um, and chastity is for, uh, for those who aren't able to handle marriage. Uh, but biblically, it's looked at a lot different, that marriage is the standard. Uh, and then chastity is for some who can handle chastity. Uh, chastity isn't the standard. It is uh, more difficult than marriage. Uh, because in chastity, you're to keep yourself pure. Uh, so I think that's one reason why this is called a difficult statement. I don't know if you want to hear uh, uh, one thing related to this that you were talking about, the yeah. Mormons believe. Right. When you referred to talking about the special name that mm -hmm. Christ is going to use, Mormons teach mm -hmm. that um, when a man and woman go into the temple to be sealed, okay. the man is told his wife's special name <laughs> and that he's the one that's going to call her out. Oh, that's By weird. that special name. Okay. Just to throw that out there. <laughs> That's uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I think the recording picked that up. That's good to have in here. That because both of those are brought up here in this. Uh, yeah. In this message that. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Mormon husbands are in position of Christ. Yep. Does that mean the wife has no intimacy with Christ? Um. Basically. Interesting. Okay. And. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Interesting to see how people interpret scriptures to, again, yeah. fit their theology rather than changing theology yeah. to fit scriptures. Uh, so Matthew 19, 12, uh, Jesus continues his statement and says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Uh, so Paul is going to give us a bit more uh, indication of what that means. Essentially, it boils down to undistracted service. 
That is what we're looking at with this 144,000. Uh, they have a mission on this earth and it's not to get married and have families. It's completely to preach the gospel. And we can look at Paul and see that his life probably looked a lot like those 144,000 lives will look like. Now, if Paul was able to do all that he did during his ministry, of course, he had 30 some years. How much would 144,000 Pauls uh, be beneficial to um, beneficial to the last days uh, unbelievers? So we look at Paul's difficult statement in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I am as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul is looking at chastity, the ability to remain chaste as a gift from God, that they are able to uh, to remain that way without burning with passions. Uh, I don't know if this is appropriate to say, I won't say any names. Uh, in my high school, there were, there was a girl who wanted to get married because she didn't, she could keep herself uh, for marriage. Uh, so she, she got married really quickly um, out of high school and thankfully was able to, to the best of my knowledge, remain chaste until that point. And a lot of people looked down at that, but uh, I don't think we should. Uh, she understood herself well enough to know that she wanted to remain pure uh, for her husband, and they're very happily married. Um, so I was actually very proud of her for that and didn't understand it as well as I do now. But uh, I think she made a really wise decision. So uh, Paul is talking here about chastity as a, uh, as a gift from God. <clears throat> All right, so hopefully that answers the question about chastity. Um, these 144,000 will, uh, by the best of my understanding, remain physically chaste, not spiritually chaste alone, but also physically chaste during this period of their ministry. Uh, the, and, and some go so far as to say that they are uh, virgins from birth, which also may be. Um, but they will likely be of a certain age um, during the tribulation period, have not been believers prior to. They'll be Jews, so they were perhaps even Orthodox Jews before the tribulation and then came to Christ, recognized Jesus as the Messiah of Israel after the, uh, after the rapture and after the beginning of the tribulation. And at that point, having, of course, a knowledge that the Orthodox Jews would have had of the Old Testament would be prepared um, to minister in the same way that the apostles did, knowing the Hebrew scriptures from their birth, but not having uh, recognized the Messiah at first. Um, so I don't know if they will be um, virgins, but I do know that they will be chaste during their ministry. Um, so the first fruits of resurrection, um, it says back here that they are, uh, let's see, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes, they have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, in 1 Corinthians 20, we get this term first fruits, and this is an Old Testament term. 
there was a first fruit sacrifice uh, where they would sacrifice the first bounty from, from the harvest um, to bless the first and second um, harvests. So this first fruits is um, not specific to the resurrection, but is a principle of um, they are the first of a larger crop. Uh, often people will uh, look at these 144,000 and say, well, they're the first resurrected individuals. Well, that's not true. The church has already been resurrected at this point. They're not the first fruits of the resurrection. They're the first fruits of conversion in this tribulation period. Um, so these first fruits of resurrection, we get that uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, 20. This is a promise um, to the church, but first fruits are not the 144,000. The first fruit is Christ. Christ himself is the first fruit of resurrection. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. A little later on in 1 Corinthians, he uses first fruits in a different way. Uh, he says, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. So these are first fruits. They're not first fruits in the same way that Christ was first fruit of resurrection. Rather, they were the first ones um, to be converted, and from their conversion in sharing the gospel, more came to know the Lord. Uh, but we have that as well uh, here with the 144,000, that they are not the first fruits of a resurrection, but they are the first fruits of convert the conversion of the Jews during the tribulation period. And that is really important because the conversion of the Jewish nation is what brings the Lord back at the end of the tribulation. In uh, Matthew 23, 39, which I don't have here, uh, Jesus says to the leaders in Israel that He's going away and he is not going to return until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is the Old Testament uh, phrase that was essentially used to hearken the Messiah or to establish the Messiah as the king. Uh, so Jesus is telling them that until they recognize him as their king nationally, um, that he is not going to return. But the Jewish nation will be converted as a nation during the tribulation period and the 144,000 are the first fruits of that conversion. In Romans 11:25, we have this prophesied by Paul. He says, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. So after the time of the Gentiles, which extends from now up until the tribulation period, the end of the church age, uh, the Jews are partially blinded, but they will be uh, unblinded during this period in the ministry of the 144,000. So in Romans 11, 26b to 27, it says, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Mosaic law. And we went forward a bit and looked at some of the, uh, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. There were some blessings and cursings. We're going to look at that more in about two weeks, I think. Uh, that is this covenant that is being spoken of here that he says, 
basically they'll go through waves of blessing and judgment. Um, but he gives a very set amount of judgments. In fact, it's three, three waves of blessing and judgment. But the final wave results in the conversion of the entire nation. It's no longer just a remnant of the nation where the Israel of God is a subsection of Israel national. But Israel nationally will be uh, equivalent to the remnant of Israel, where there will be a complete national um, conversion at the end of the tribulation period. All right, so what is our conclusion here for this first part? It says the 144,000 are viewed in heaven. This indicates that their seal for service has run its course and they have fully fulfilled their ministry. They are in the presence of the Lord who has purchased them from the earth and that is by his blood and they have received it through faith. They have an immediate or an intimate relationship with the Lord. Uh, he is a personal God with them just as he is with us, uh, the church. The 144,000 have become murderers after the point of the tribulation. Till then, they are preserved to serve the Lord on the earth as his witness. But at that point, um, their ministry in converting Israel will have been fulfilled. Mm -hmm.